Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. And we are in part 13 of our series on the book of Revelation, and we're digging deep in this amazing book, trying to keep it real streamlined on what we look at, but I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks that it would be good to have a one-page little resource that you could access if you wanted to. And we've got a one-page little resource here, and I've titled it Resources for the Study of Revelation. And we've got those in the Resource Center straight through those doors there on the right where you see all the books. Those are laying out. And then, Connie, you put those on some stools by the back door if you want to grab one on the way out because I've had quite a few exchanges with people, and they've said, you know, what study Bible should I use to look into the book of Revelation, what commentaries are helpful. So I provided um, some recommended commentaries. And again, for some of you, you're not interested, that's fine. But I provided three different types of commentaries. One is kind of an entry level. If you don't have a whole lot of time and you just want to be able to dip into it chapter by chapter, I've got a couple of recommendations. And then an intermediate level and then what I would call an advanced level that's going to be thicker and involve a little more research and looking into it. But the truth is, as we're seeing, the book of Revelation is the inspired word of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for all the saints to equip us for ministry. And so we said from week one, that the book of Revelation is accessible to Christians. Otherwise, it would not have been given to the church, the seven churches in Asia Minor, and to us, the churches of all time and all places. It is practical. It equips us for ministry, for worship, for witness. We've also been seeing that the book of Revelation helps us gaze upon the glory and beauty of the sovereign God of the universe. So it's a book of worship. Everything is to be seen in the book of Revelation in light of chapters four and five. The greatness, the glory, the majesty of God and Christ enthroned, ruling and reigning. And we're gonna look at that a little more today. The book of Revelation is good news. It's part of the gospel of the New Testament. It's actually how the story ends, so it's immensely important to look at it. We're seeing each week we ask two questions, don't we? We ask two questions. The first one is, what did this text say to the first century readers? Those seven churches undergoing persecution in the first century in Asia Minor, what was it saying to them? Because there are some very specific things that God was saying through John to them. And then secondly, we're asking, what is it saying to us? What is the Holy Spirit saying through these texts to us 
in 2021. So if you want to open your Bible to Revelation 11, we looked at Revelation 10 most recently, and thank you to Al King for his message last week. Wasn't that rich? Thank you, Al, for reminding us the importance of daily time in the scriptures and all that God does through that as we spend time with him in his word. So we're looking at chapter 11 today. We looked at chapter 10, and if you remember, we saw that John was instructed to eat the scroll in chapter 10, to ingest it, to take it into his heart, into his spiritual bones. Why? So that in turn, he could prophesy the message of Revelation to the nations. And so now here we are in chapter 11, after John has been exhorted to do that, and we're at the halfway point, the midway point in the book of Revelation. And what we'll see today, there's three parts in this text. It's 19 verses, which we're going to read as we do every week. And if you remember in chapter 1, those that are new, maybe tuning in for the first time, this book was intended to be read aloud. So chapter 1 says that there is a special blessing that comes with the reading and the hearing of the book of Revelation. So each week we take a chapter and we read it aloud. So we have 19 verses today. Are you ready for that? Buckle up. 19 verses that we're going to walk through. And there's three parts. We're going to see in a few verses it's about measuring the temple. Then there's these two witnesses. And thirdly, there's the seventh trumpet, verses 15 through 19. What I'm going to try to do as well as we work through the text is I'm going to recommend an arrow prayer from each section. If you're at Our Lord's for more than 10 minutes, you're going to hear about arrow prayers. And we're not just into reading and studying the Bible, but we're into praying it. The Bible is a prayer book that is meant to give us words to interact with God. Al said last week that we have the written word of God, but it brings us to the living word of God, Christ himself. He is the capital W word. And so as we work through this text, I'm going to make some suggestions. How do we, our lords, how do we pray this text? How do we pray it? Get our hearts tenderized, get our hearts in the presence of God so that it moves from just learning and study to interaction with the living God. So let's read this. Revelation 11, 1 through 19, then we'll walk through it and make some comments about the particular, the salient features of it. So Revelation 11, 1 and 19. Then I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. 
Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming very soon. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and all who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God. Wow. Wow. So as we do, each week we're going to walk through this. And again, the point of looking especially at the book of Revelation, I'm trying to kind of open up a little bit the way that I would encourage you to take a study Bible, maybe a commentary, prayerfully read this. And we're going to look at these three sections, the first verses 1 through 2, measuring the temple. And what we're going to see in each section Revelation is a God-centered book. If we're not reading it in that fashion, it is theocentric. That means God-centered. So through every text, it's really not about measuring the temple. It's not about the two witnesses. It's about God, the majesty, the glory, the greatness, the power, the holiness of God. And so lingering behind this measuring of the temple is the idea that God protects his people 
But what in the world does this measuring the temple symbolize? Anyone else wonder as you hear that? In the first century, there were bamboo-like canes that grew on the banks of the River Jordan. They grew about 20 feet tall, and they made for great measuring rods. So most likely, John was snapping one of those off and using it as he acted out this prophetic, symbolic action. And we've seen at every turn that John was immersed in the Old Testament prophets. So he is oftentimes doing what the Old Testament prophets did, saying what they said with a new spin on it because the Messiah has come. Here he is again. The background for this is the prophet Ezekiel. In chapters 40 through 42, Ezekiel does something similar. He is commanded in a vision to measure the temple. And in short, this is about God owning, protecting, and preserving his people. It's really not so much about a physical temple. It's about the living temple. And we've seen that the book of Revelation is shot through with these symbols. And yes, there may be some literal nature to things at time, but more importantly is the message of God and what these things symbolize. So the point of this is God, in a sense, saying, these are my people, Jewish and Gentile Christ followers from all nations, I have marked them. We saw that in chapter 7 and 9. Do you remember? The mark of God, the name of God on the followers of Jesus. And I will preserve them spiritually, even though they may suffer physically, even to the point of death. We'll see that next week in chapter 12, that Christians then and Christians now sometimes are called to suffer even to the point of death. That's the point of these first verses here. Some people can get in and you can analyze which temple was this and was it the Herod temple, the Herodian temple. You know what? The message is God owns, protects his people and loves them. So you've got the measuring of the temple, you've got the measuring of the worshipers, you've got the measuring of the altar, and the point is God saying, I love and I protect my worshipers. We'll see in a minute that as we look at the second section, the two witnesses actually reiterate this, that God protects them ultimately. What about the trampling of the holy city for 42 months? The holy city, again, is God's people. We've seen that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to use scripture to interpret scripture. So oftentimes, something will be introduced, like it is here. What is the holy city? Well, it will come back around in chapters 21 and 22 to say, the holy city is God's people. The holy city is the new temple. It's the new Jerusalem. So again, it's reiterating here that the holy city might be trampled underfoot. It might be that the people of God are persecuted. Why 42 months? comes out of the book of Daniel, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. How are you doing with that math? I lost myself as I was saying that. I was like, wait, how? three and a half years. Why three and a half years? The Jews, the Hebrew scriptures loved symbolism. And this from Daniel 7 
three and a half years was a time when the Jews suffered greatly under this Syrian tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes. So from really 167 to 164, this Antiochus stuck it to the Jewish people and persecuted them and trampled on them, desecrated their temple. And so therefore, this number of three and a half years, just like they experienced under the the reign of the tyrant Antiochus, becomes a symbol for suffering and persecution. So that's being reiterated here. We'll see later in the book of Revelation that there's two segments of three and a half years, and we'll get into it. But again, the point is not to get lost in chronology and charts and all. The point is God protects his people no matter what they go through, no matter what we go through. Let's look at these two witnesses. Pique your curiosity here to read this, and we hear all kinds of things, and I've mentioned before, if you get online, before you know it, you can have someone on YouTube naming who the two witnesses are. They themselves may say, you know what, I am one of the witnesses, and that's probably a good time to turn off the video because they're never right, or the date setting. You know, they're going to calculate somehow using God's algorithms and, and it's going to be 2025 that the two, it, you know, it's hogwash. I don't know if I've ever said that. The other day, Jake was, I said, that's poppycock and balderdash. And Jake said, what is that? And I said, well, let's look online, son. Let's see what the definition is. It's hogwash. Anytime you're setting dates, and that's a good way to misread the book of Revelation is to try to lay out some chronological chart. We've, we've said it's like a musical piece. And so oftentimes you're hearing some of the same themes, some of the same refrains. We talked about it being like different angles, camera angles on some of the same themes. It's not necessarily laying out a chronology. And you know what? I will stand corrected because we're humble before the text. If the Lord says, you know what, there is a chronology there, and it's all laid out, and you didn't see it, son, then I'll say, yes, sir, that's wonderful. Would you show us? So we have to be humble before the text, but we know it's filled with symbols, and they overlap, and they interact, and it's like a puzzle with various pieces, and the point of the story is God is amazing. God wins in the end, and Jesus Christ is Lord, and it will be fully realized. Let's look at verses 3 through 14, these witnesses. Let's ponder who are these figures, and what might they symbolize? How long do they prophesy? If you look here, verse 3, that three and a half years is coming up again. They are prophesying during a period or periods of the church's suffering. There's two of them. Again, the Old Testament helps us understand why are there two. There could have been three, could have been five. There's two because in the Old Testament, two or more witnesses were required to provide a just or valid legal witness. And so these two witnesses are implementing God's charge against obstinate, unbelieving nations. And so it backs up the veracity of the message, the truthfulness. There's two of them. We're going to see some more about them in a moment, but we're looking at 
some of the symbols here. What are they wearing? They're wearing sackcloth. It's an outward symbol of mourning in the Old Testament, oftentimes paired with repentance. We saw this in the New Testament. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and what's he wearing? Sackcloth. In this tradition, like his counterpart, Elijah, in 2 Kings 1, So it's probably signifying that as these folks are bringing this message, they're brokenhearted. They're not doing it in a way, cold-heartedness at all. There's a sense of mourning and the weight of the prophetic message on them. And so they themselves are feeling that, and they're in mourning, and when you receive the word of the Lord, it liberates you and gives you life, but it also breaks your heart. And so you repent and you are overcome with the holiness and fear and terror of the holy and awesome God. And so I think it's signifying that. They're called two olive trees. Very quickly here, without going into it too deeply, we've encountered the idea of two lampstands. This comes from Revelation 1, but also Zechariah 4. It's basically signifying that they, like Israel, are filled with the illuminating light of God to shine out into a dark world. Zechariah, the original context where some of these things are lifted from that are accessed in John's mind, the whole point of Zechariah 4 is not by might nor by power, By my spirit, says the Lord. So here in this vision, it's being underscored that these prophets are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring their message of judgment and hopeful repentance to the nations. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? What happens when people oppose them? Fire pours from their mouths. And consumes their foes. Again, we're going to see in a moment here. It's going to help us identify who these two folks are. In 2 Kings 1, Elijah the prophet. He called down fire on a particular king's men. In 2 Kings 1. But even more than that, we see in the scriptures that the word of God is like fire. And so it is saying here that the word of God pours out, like Jeremiah said in chapter 5, verse 14, is not my word like fire. So these prophets are fiery prophets under the weight of God's message, speaking the word of the Lord. You go on to look here, not only does it, is it reminiscent of what Elijah did, but Moses and the plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7 through 12. So they're doing what Elijah did, and they're doing what Moses did. So I think these two witnesses embody and symbolize the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Moses. Pretty clear here. Would you agree that some of those things are signaling, this is Elijah, this is Moses. And what we'll see over the next couple of weeks, we've seen that Satan is a counterfeiter. And so where God has these two witnesses, we're going to see in Revelation 12 and 13, that Satan actually has two witnesses as well. They're a counterfeit. Antichrist and the beast. 
So in view of this here, I'm going to suggest an arrow prayer. Take a breather for a moment. How does this text pray? Not only we dig into it and research and look and correlate the scriptures, but Lord, how does this pray? This is good news. So I found myself praying this prayer. Lord, may the fire of your word consume my heart and my spiritual enemies. Maybe you can think of one. Again, this stuff is meant to be read. It's meant to be prayed to lead us into interaction with God. So Lord, may the fire of your word consume my heart and my spiritual enemies. Key word there is spiritual, right? It's not consume my enemies because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're not just dealing with flesh and blood human beings, even the ones that are outright filled with rage toward Christ and the gospel. There are spiritual forces at play here. So when we appeal to God, we're appealing that he would strike down his spiritual enemies, the demons, the spiritual forces that attack Christ, the church, the gospel. Their death here talks about their death. The beast from the bottomless pit attacks them. At verse 7, their bodies are left in the street and the nations have this strange celebration over the death of these two prophets because their ministry tormented them. Again, the background is Daniel 7. We'll be looking at this over the next couple of weeks. The Antichrist figure makes war with the saints. We'll talk more about that. But now we have a little bit fuller picture here that can help us understand what these two witnesses symbolize. Again, this is where I would stand corrected, as would you, right? I tend to think that the best way to understand this text, and I'm lingering with it a little bit, is that all right with you? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding around this. In my opinion, I think that in the last days of the last days, there will probably be a couple of witnesses. Because there is a literal nature to this. It's symbolic. But I think there will probably be a couple of witnesses who move in the power and spirit and prophetic ministry that Elijah and Moses did. And it will get the attention of the nations. But I also think we have to interpret this in light of other scripture. And it's, a lot of the symbolism is from Daniel, and I think that there's actually a corporate understanding of these two witnesses. So there's literally two witnesses, but then they represent God's prophetic people, the church. Why is that? A couple of reasons here. One is these witnesses are called two lampstands. Bear with me a moment here, but where else did we hear about a lampstand? In Revelation, Paul, Revelation chapter 1, right? And what did the lampstand represent? The churches. So it's a corporate understanding. You have one lampstand here, but it represents those first century churches. I think the same thing is being conveyed here, a corporate understanding. The other reason is the entire world will see the death of these two witnesses. 
some people would say, well, perhaps that's on television or something like that. We're not sure. But I think that it's communicating that these witnesses have permeated the nations worldwide, and they're going to be put to death. They're going to suffer greatly, die a death of martyrdom, and the world will therefore see. So we could go on and on about trying to interpret this, but I hope that helps a little bit. We'll also see next week that there is a woman who's spoken of in chapter 12, a singular woman, but she symbolizes the corporate community of Jesus. So they're raised here from the dead. Does this sound familiar? They're opposed, they're put to death, and they're raised from the dead. Where have you heard that before? It's the essence of the gospel. And so these prophetic people, probably two literally one day, the prophetic church in the last days, are following in the footsteps of Jesus who spoke the word of God with great fire and passion, but he was opposed. He was put to death. And like Christ, they're raised after three and a half days. Oh, goodness. We're just going to have to move on because I want to touch on the last section here. But such beautiful word pictures here. How are they raised? The breath of life enters their bodies. Those who see are terrified, but what John is saying here, Ezekiel, back in chapter 47, prophesied that one day, in the last days, the dry bones would be breathed into by the very breath, the power of God, and that they would stand up and become a large army filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and I think it's signaling that here. These two witnesses and the corporate people of God, the body of Christ throughout the world as God's prophetic people will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make a comment here. I'll expect a few emails in response, but friends, this is something that everyone is seeing. So sometimes, especially dispensational theologians, people that I've already commented on, toss that grenade out there a little bit, that the idea that Christians are taken out of difficult times of persecution. And there's great debate around this, and there's freedom for everyone to have their own view, but I think the example of Jesus, the example of the apostles, the idea that Christians are taken out of difficult times is misleading. Frankly, I find it unbiblical, and if you were to talk about a pre-trib rapture or being pulled out of persecution in difficult times to contemporary believers in Iran right now, they would laugh at you. Or in China, because they are putting their lives on the line every day, and they're joyful and willing to do it. And so the American church can look at Christian brothers and sisters like that. So this is not symbolizing a secret rapture. One commentator says, the triumph of these witnesses is no secret rapture. It is openly visible to all. Nor is this an escapist rapture. In John's revelation, Christians go to the presence of God through 
tribulation and martyrdom, not instead of it. Amen? Again, could I be absolutely wrong on that? Yes. But friends, as I read the scriptures, study the life of Jesus, look at the early church, I find that they are so in love with God, with Christ, and filled with passion for the gospel that they are ready to put it all on the line. And that is a message for us in our Western context. So they're raised from the dead. Let's look at this third section here because I want to finish with this, verses 15 through 19. How are we doing? Doing okay? You want 30 seconds to, why don't we do that? Take 30 seconds. I'm looking at Mike Adele. 30 seconds to, yeah, take 30 seconds. You can chat with the person next to you. Again, 19 verses from this chapter. Just take a breather for a moment. We'll come back and end with this worshipful section. Then we'll have ministry time. All right, so verses 15 through 19, speaking about the seventh trumpet here and the message, the God-centered message, is that God's universal kingdom is established. The announcement that's being made here at verse 15, the essence of it is that dominion and rule of this world have been transferred to God and Christ, who will reign forever and ever Old Testament prophecy describes this time. Zechariah 14.9 says that one day God will be king over all the earth. Daniel 2 says that the kingdom of God will come and overpower and envelop all the kingdoms, all other empires. This is that moment. This is that moment that the angels and the 24 elders are singing and celebrating. Again, friends, great mystery here. You've got to read the Old Testament to understand these things, to read the rest of the New Testament. Paul speaks explicitly about this in 1 Corinthians 15, the when and the how the kingdom is given from God to Christ. And we have to, again, humbly approach texts like this. We can know for sure that it's underway. It will happen. And the angels in heaven are singing, and John gets to see into that moment. If you remember, Jesus in Luke 4, Matthew 4, was tempted by Satan. And what was it that Satan offered Christ? He said, if you'll kneel down and worship me, Messiah, then what? Give you the kingdoms of the world. And Christ said, no. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But it's giving a little window, an insight there that somehow in the mystery, the providence of God's sovereign power, Satan has temporary dominion over the earth. 
And so what is happening here is the rightful ruler, King Jesus, the Messiah, is assuming his rightful place because he got there through the cross. And he will one day, will get to see fully manifest, universally, the rule and reign of God. George Ladd, favorite kingdom theologian, says this, the idea here is that behind the many diverse kingdoms which have ruled humanity in human history, listen to this, there lies a single source of authority. This will be manifested in concentrated form in the Antichrist in the last days. Listen to what he says here. Tune in for a moment here because it speaks to our moment. Here is a profound bit of theology. The evil demonic powers which the church must face in the final days are in principle no different from the autocratic power which the church has had to face in secular states throughout history. Friends, the New Testament teaches that we're living in the last days. So we've already seen that that question is answered. Is it the end? Well, Christ and Paul taught that the age to come had broken through. So yes, we live in the last days. Do we know if it's the final last days? Only God knows. But we know that the kingdom of God has broken into human history through the person of Jesus. And when we see governments, as we've witnessed recently in California, places like Canada, closing churches, putting fences around churches, barging into services, as they did in Canada on Easter, to stop worship, we are seeing the work of an antichrist spirit. To see a more fully developed expression of this, look at the way the Chinese Communist Party seeks to establish its plan and extinguish the church in China. But friends, whether it's the CCP or any other power-hungry system seeking to put their boot on the neck of the church, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Amen? Jesus asserted, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when any sinful, tyrannical government tries to put out the fire of the gospel that burns in the heart of the church, the fire only spreads. God even uses the enemy to wake up the church. And revival breaks out. This has been happening for 2,000 years from the first century tyrant, Domitian, to current godless governments. Friend, God wins. The gospel cannot be stopped, and they have a perspective that we're getting to see here in this text. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it's a present reality through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus but we live in this interim time. We're waiting for the not yet of this. But Christ will build his church, and we get to be part of that. And we're, I'm just giving you a little heads up as we look at chapters 12, 13, and 14. The book of Revelation is a theological critique of human power gone awry. And so 
we are going to be talking about various governments that are trying to put their boot on the neck of the church. And it never works. It backfires every single time. Man, are they clamping down on the church in China? But there is unprecedented revival and awakening and signs and wonders. They're living the book of Acts in many places. The gospel cannot be stopped. Many other things we can say here, but this is what the angels, the 24 elders, are singing about. That God has moved and God has come in the person of Jesus, but then one day God will intervene decisively. So as we end here, I want to encourage you to continue to eat the book, just like we looked at in chapter 10 last time. Friends, make time each day, even if it's just a few minutes. Don't try to bite off too much. Don't say, I'm going to spend an hour or two hours. Try five minutes. Try 10 minutes. If this is something you've been doing a little more, it's like physical exercise. Perhaps you can spend 30 minutes. But friends, let's get in the book every day. Prayerfully read it. Find arrow prayers like the one I recommended. And then you can utilize the resources that we have online at olcc.org backslash resources. Because we are people of the book here, are we not? We are people of the book and people of the spirit because that's how the New Testament models it. We want to be rooted and empowered. So why don't we stand up here? No, it took a little bit more time. Certain chapters just require a little bit more time. Is that all right with you? So friends, let's eat the book. And that might be literally the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter as we're working through it. Again, pick up one of those handouts. There are some resources there that are helpful. You may want to eat the book by reading a psalm each day, you can, or the book of John, a chapter a day, but the point is that we're in God's presence, being nourished by his word.